your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn with me, if you would, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 2. As we are continuing our series through the book of Romans, we come this morning to Romans 2, verses 17 to 29. And before we read, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word. Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise you for revealing yourself to us through your word. We praise you, O Lord, that it is the infallible truth and the only infallible rule of faith in life. We praise you, O Lord, for the grace and the mercy that is extended to us in the revealing of your word. And I pray now, O Lord, that as we turn our attention to it, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that the same Spirit, O Lord, that gave breath to these words would now illumine our eyes and open our hearts that we might receive them. And may it bear fruit in us that would be for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word from Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 29. Paul is continuing his words uh, addressing specifically the Jews in this section. And and uh, he's continuing his uh, discourse on human sin and uh, being under God's judgment and as we'll see, these words apply to us as professing Christians as well. So Romans two seventeen to 29. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, Because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And by the way, all of those if clauses are a type of construction in the Greek that assumes a positive answer. So if, or you could translate it, since you call yourself a Jew, and since you rely on the law, and since you boast in God, and since you do all of these things. Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. And so then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. 
Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. You may be seated. A friend of mine once told me about a time he borrowed a friend's car to drive through Chicago. And when he got in the car, he noticed the car had the little white iPass box uh, on, fixed on the, the windshield. And for those of you who may not know that iPass enables drivers to, to, to uh, take the, the iPass lane uh, instead of having to wait in line to pay tolls at the toll booth which is a very handy thing when you're driving through Chicago. The sight of that little white box uh, was an unexpected and, and welcome surprise to my friend. And he happily took advantage of it. Every time he came to a toll, he blissfully breezed through the I-Pass lane, kind of, you know, thankful he wasn't like all the poor, unfortunate souls who were waiting in line to pay their tolls. But he was in for a rude awakening several days later when he found out from his friend that he had incurred quite a hefty fine his friend's iPass had not been activated. And of course, unless the account is activated, that little white box is just a little white box. It provides no benefit at all to the driver. My friend had been driving that whole time with a false sense of assurance. And friends, in our text this morning, Paul is writing to those who have a false sense of assurance about their relationship with God. He's writing specifically to Jews, but his words, like I said, apply uh, to us as professing Christians as well. And so we see in these verses two specific ways that we can have a false sense of assurance about our relationship with God. We see first in verses 17 to 24 that we can have a false assurance about our relationship with God based on the knowledge that we possess. For the Jews, this was a matter of the law. Everything that Paul says in verses 17 to 24 revolves around the Jews' knowledge of the law. It was through their knowledge of the law that they knew God's will and approved of what was superior. It was through their knowledge of the law that they considered themselves as guides for the blind and instructors of the foolish and teachers of little children, which in this context refers to Gentiles. And Paul uses three, phase, uh, three phrases in these verses to show how central the law was to the Jews. He says in verse 17, you rely on the law. He says in verse 18, you are instructed by the law. You're grounded in it. This is the guide for your life. He says in verse 20, you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And so the, the, the whole scope of truth, the whole essence of truth is there for You're taking in what you know to be true in the law. The Jews were masters of the law. They knew it inside and out. They they prided themselves in being keepers of the law and guiding others in its truth, being teachers of the law. But the problem, as Paul points out in verses 21 to 24, is that so many of the Jews don't practice what they preach. They are teachers of the law, but their own lives are not consistent with what they teach. And so Paul says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? 
You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? I need to say a little bit about that one. The others are relatively self-explanatory, but this one seems on the surface a bit confusing. When Paul talks about robbing temples, he's not necessarily saying that the Jews are going around in ski masks actually robbing temples. He's probably most likely talking about any kind of illegitimate profit from pagan temples and the idols they contained. And so, in other words, the Jews preach their abhorrence of idolatry, but they have no problem saving a few bucks by going to the bargain bins at the market and buying goods that have been stolen from these pagan temples. And the point that that Paul is making in all of this is that the Jews have become experts in instructing others in the law, but they're not living in obedience to the law themselves. In a word, they are hypocrites. And this sin of hypocrisy is an egregious sin because it brings dishonor to God's name. As Paul says, you who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And again, the implied answer is, is to, to all of these questions is, is yes. That you, you do dishonor God by preaching the law but failing to practice what you preach. And to add weight to his argument, Paul quotes Isaiah 52, verse 5, the, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, he says in verse 24, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now the context of Isaiah 52 helps us understand what Paul is, is saying here. In Isaiah 52 and its surrounding chapters, uh, God shows how the people of Judah are in exile because of their sin. And their being in exile uh, makes a laughingstock of God's name among the Gentile nations because the Gentile nations look at the people of Israel, the people of Judah in exile and say, look, their God couldn't even, couldn't even save them. Their God couldn't do anything to help them. What a, what a joke that God is. It makes it look as if God is powerless to help his own people. And it tarnishes his reputation. It robs him of his glory. And now Paul says the hypocrisy of the Jews in his day is doing the very same thing. The sin of hypocrisy is a bad reflection on the God that his people claim to serve. Stuart Briscoe, uh, who uh, was, a, if you don't know, was an uh, excellent uh, preacher, Bible scholar, author, um, who recently died. But Stuart Briscoe uh, once told about a time when he was working at a bank. And uh, during his time there, a fellow employee embezzled a, a large sum of money from that bank. And when he was caught, it came out that this man had, had been secretly living two lives, that he had two wives and he had two families to support, which is why I suppose he needed to embezzle all this money to support these two families. But the worst part of the scandal was that this man was also a well-known and prominent leader and preacher in his local church. And the effects of his double life and his hypocrisy was that God himself was dishonored because for weeks after that scandal was exposed, Stuart Briscoe said he listened day in and day out over and over and over again. His fellow employees just dismissed the church as a, whole bunch, as a bunch of hypocrites who would want anything to do with, with the church and listened to them again and again, despised the God that this man had claimed to serve. This is what the sin of hypocrisy does. It dishonors God. 
And like the Jews in Paul's day, we may be experts. We, well, th- this is an issue, by the way, that, that I think is, is particularly relevant. It was relevant for the Jews and it's relevant for us today. And it's no, I don't think it's any uh, coincidence that, that Paul puts this, this uh, section on hypocrisy right after his section on dealing with sexual sin. Because for the Jews in Paul's day, it was so easy to point out sexual sin in others and just kind of overlook the sin in themselves. And I think we see the same thing among many professing Christians today, how easy it is to, to come down hard and to expose and to point out sexual sin and how easy it is to overlook the sin in our own lives. And Paul says that that kind of hypocrisy is an egregious sin because it dishonors God. Like the Jews in Paul's day, we may be experts in knowing what God's word says. We may be able to quote verse upon verse and have stacks of books written by biblical scholars on our shelves and our libraries at home and be able to teach a master's level course on Christian ethics. But if we're not living it out, we are only fooling ourselves. We're living with a false assurance of our relationship with God and we are dishonoring his name to those around us, which is why... Nietzsche, I believe it was, who once said, I might believe in a redeemer if his redeemers looked more redeemed. And so Paul asked the Jews a series of penetrating questions, and these are questions that we need to ask ourselves as well. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who who know your Bible so well and who approve of what is superior and who guide others in the truths of God's word, do, do you yourselves do what it says? Does your practice match your profession? Or do you dishonor God by your hypocrisy? As professing Christians, how easy it is for us to come to a false assurance of our relationship with God based on the knowledge we possess. But Paul says that this is not enough to earn favor with God. You can stand before the king at the last day with all of your your wealth of knowledge about his revealed will and his word and his instruction through his word and, and still hear him say, away from me, you evildoer, I never knew you. So we can have a false assurance of our relationship with God based on the knowledge we possess. Then Paul goes on, secondly, to say in verses 25 to 27 that we can have a false assurance based on the rituals we perform. And again, for the Jews, it was the ritual of circumcision, which was the the outward sign of, of covenant inclusion. It was what marked you as belonging to the community of God's people. But many of the Jews... Uh, in, in, uh, in Paul's day, had come to think that the, that, that the ritual itself had secured their relationship with God, that they didn't really have to do anything else because, hey, we've, we've got the mark after all, so nothing can really happen to us after that. In his uh, commentary on the book of Moses, Rabbi Menachem wrote, Our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will see hell. And the Midrash, uh, Telahim, expressed the same sentiment, saying, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. And many had come to think that the mere physical act would guarantee their salvation. And Paul refutes this false sense of assurance. He says, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. In other words, it's not the outward uh, ritual that matters. Just as an I-pass box is useless if it's not linked with an account, so too the outward ritual of circumcision is meaningless if it's not linked with 
obedience. And again, there is an underlying principle that, that applies to us as professing Christians. Like the Jews of Paul's day, we can so easily come to a false sense of assurance in our relationship with God based on the rituals we perform. And so we grow complacent in our walk with God, but we assume everything's fine because after all, we've made our profession of faith or we've been baptized or we've given faithfully to the church. But over and over again, the Bible warns us against replacing obedience with ritual. And I should say replacing heart obedience with mere external going through the motions ritual. This is what God said to his people through the prophet Isaiah, isn't it? He said, I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. And God goes on to say that what he really wants is obedience. He says, you're performing all the right rituals, but they're meaningless to me because your lives are, your hearts are not right. Your lives are full of disobedience and injustice. He says, your hands are, are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Rituals are meaningless if they're not linked with obedience. If you are staking your claim to heaven on the rituals you perform, you will be in for a rude awakening at the last day. For you cannot appear before the Almighty Judge and enter into his kingdom by citing your baptism or your church membership or your years of Sunday worship or your track record of family devotions or any, any other expression or outward expression of belonging to God. And be on guard, Paul says, against a false assurance of your relationship with God based on the rituals you perform. Are you really following Christ or are you simply a Christian by name? Are you living as a cross-bearing disciple or are you just coasting and, and clinging to externals? You see, Paul's words in these verses are meant to shake us, just like they were meant to shake the Jews of his day to jolt us out of our complacency, to make us see that, that, maybe, that maybe our relationship with God is not as secure as we thought. And just when we're beginning to get really uncomfortable, uh, Paul goes on, thankfully, in the, uh, the last couple of verses to, uh, to give us what we need to hear. So these are the two ways in which we can come to a false sense of assurance about our relationship with God, two dangers to avoid, two diseases that lead to spiritual death. But Paul thankfully doesn't leave us hanging. He gives us, in verses 28 and 29, the antidote. He shows us what it takes to have a true assurance of our relationship with God. And the antidote uh, is, is this, very simply, well, I guess maybe not super simply. <laughs> we'll unpack it a little bit. A simple statement that has a lot loaded into it. So the antidote is this, to have our hearts circumcised by the Spirit. Paul says, A person is not a Jew who is one only, who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision, he says, is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. 
What is Paul talking about? Well, when, when Paul talks about circumcision of the heart, he is recalling the, the frequent Old Testament call to repentance. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God called his people to repent by calling them to circumcise their hearts. When Moses was preparing the people of God to enter into the promised land, as we read earlier this morning, he was speaking to people who were stiff-necked and hard-hearted, a people who had persistently rebelled against their God. And, And Moses said to them, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him? to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. To God's circumcised people, this was a poignant and a hard-hitting call. You've been circumcised outwardly now. Circumcise your hearts. It's a call to repentance. And generations later, when when the people of God had grown hard-hearted once again and rebellious again, and they were on the verge of exile because of their sin, God called them to repent again, this time through the prophet Jeremiah. And he did this all throughout the Old Testament. And God said through the prophet Jeremiah, Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. It will burn with no one to quench it. And now in Romans 2, when Paul talks about a true circumcision being a circumcision of the heart, he is once again, like the Old Testament writers and prophets, calling for repentance. He's calling upon people to stop their stubborn refusal to live under the lordship of Christ. He's calling them to change their hearts and their minds, which is precisely what repentance is. Uh, in, in, in Greek, the word repentance is the Greek word metanoia, which means literally a changing of the mind, to change your mind, a, a turning around, to stop doing what you have been doing, to start living another way. I was out yesterday morning, very early in the morning, it was the duck opener. So I was duck hunting yesterday morning with, with Ethan, and we uh, out in the early morning darkness, I had my boat going through this little channel to try to get to the spot that I had marked, to, uh, you know, to try to, uh, the spot that I wanted to hunt. And uh, I got out there, and I see a light flashing to indicate somebody's already there, so I couldn't hunt in my spot. So I had to take my boat, stop it, turn it around, and go the opposite direction to find a new spot. That's what repentance is. It is a stopping and not proceeding in that same direction anymore, turning around and going the opposite way. That's repentance. And that's what Paul is talking about. For the Jews, it meant to stop relying on the external observances of the law and circumcision and to receive Christ in true faith. You're going down this path, Paul says, all the external stuff, the the rituals, the the law, the knowledge, all the things that you have, you you need to turn around. You need to go the opposite direction. You need to, to come to Christ. And for us, it means to surrender fully to the Spirit and to live wholeheartedly under the Lordship of Christ. The imagery of circumcision is significant because it is a surgical procedure. It involves cutting. To circumcise the heart is to cut away the heart that has been hardened. It is like what God said through the prophet Ezekiel. 
When he said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Though Ezekiel doesn't use the specific language of circumcision, that is what he's talking about. It is a circumcision of the heart. It is a cutting away of the heart of stone. And that's what Paul is driving at here in Romans. The only real antidote to a a false sense of assurance about our relationship with God is to have changed hearts. Hearts in which the hard parts of rebellion and selfishness and hypocrisy and evil and deception and selfishness are radically cut away and new flesh is put in its place. And as Ezekiel prophesied, this radical heart change would come about by the work of the Spirit. Notice again what Ezekiel says. He says, I will put my spirit in you, God says through Ezekiel. And here in Romans 2, Paul says that that promised spirit has now come for circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, Paul says. It is the Holy Spirit that does the the work of circumcising the heart, exposing sin and cutting out the parts that are hard and corrupted and sinful and and arrogant and, and complacent. And it's the gift of the spirit received through faith in Christ that gives us true assurance of a right relationship with God. As Paul will go on to say in Romans 8, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. By him, by the spirit dwelling in us, we have a true and authentic, intimate relationship with God. I invite you to turn with me in your your Bibles, if you would. I didn't put this one up on the screen. I thought of it this morning, and so I had thought of it. I just forgot to put it in in the slides. But Acts chapter 7 Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 53. I think this is a really important connection uh, to what Paul is talking about here and to the whole business of circumcised hearts and it being the, the work of the Holy Spirit in us and how it's connected to obedience, which ties in both Ezekiel's prophecy and Paul's words in Romans 2. And so now here in Acts chapter 7, this is, these are the words of Stephen right before he is stoned by the Sanhedrin. And he is, in all of chapter 7, a beautiful chapter, by the way, he has rehearsed this whole history of Israel, the history of redemption history, and saying again and again how God, what God has done and how, uh, for his wandering and faithless people. And now he applies that to the Jews of his day, and he calls them to repent. And this is what he says, Acts 7, verses 51 to 53. He says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. And again, they, they, they know that language from all throughout the Old Testament when God would call those people to repent and say, circumcise your hearts. And Paul says, you're still un- you haven't listened to God at all. Your hearts are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You, you, you always resist the Holy Spirit. There's that connection. Circumcised hearts is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that does the work of cutting out the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. He says in verse 52, Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels. 
but have not obeyed it. Again, it's a call, a radical call to repentance, which led to him being stoned to death for speaking the truth. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Eustace is a snobbish and arrogant and cowardly and self-absorbed and sort of just a rascally kind of a boy. And through a series of errors, he becomes a dragon. And as a dragon, he comes to see how awful he had been. He hadn't really seen it before, but when he's a dragon, he comes to see that he had been dragonish as a boy, that, he, that, that his outward manifestation now is really just a, a reflection of what he was inside. And he longs to change for the first time in his young life. But no matter what he does and no matter what he tries, he cannot undragon himself. And there's only Aslan, the great lion, who is able to cut deep enough into his dragon skin to bring out the real boy within. And that deep cutting, that clawing off of the dragon skin is a picture of repentance. This is that clawing, that cutting is circumcision of the heart. It is an inside-out change so radical and so deep and so surgical that we, we cannot do it on our own. It can only come by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, which is why Stephen said to those who are about to stone him, circumcise your hearts. You, you keep resisting the Holy Spirit. You're only going to have circumcised hearts if you allow the Spirit to do that deep inward cutting. When my friend drove through Chicago, he was driving with a false sense of assurance based on the physical presence of that little I-pass box in his friend's car. And for some of us, our relationship with God has become like that little white box. We are coasting through life with a false assurance based on the knowledge we possess or the rituals we perform. But Paul says that we will never secure God's favor through these things. And what it takes to be assured of our relationship with God is this inner transformation of the heart as a gift of grace by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so if you have not yet undergone this kind of inner heart transformation, then this text is calling you to repentance. Just as Paul was calling his fellow Jews to repent, this is sort of a foreshadow of what Paul is going to talk about in more depth later on in Romans. But he was, he was, what he wants to do is to, to provoke the Jews to jealousy in order to bring about true repentance that they too might come to Christ. And that's what this text intends to, to do in you if you have not yet undergone that kind of heart transformation. And if you have already undergone this kind of inner heart transformation, then this text calls for a response of renewed commitment in deep gratitude and praise for what God has done for us in Christ. For he has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit as a seal and as an assurance through whom we are able to call, cry out, Abba, Father, I belong to you. And I know through the, the presence of the Spirit in my life that I am truly a true child of God. To God be the glory. Let's bow together.
Lord God, as we come before your throne this morning in a time of silent response, I pray, O Lord, for those who need to hear Paul's words and to hear in Paul's words a call to repentance. I pray for a softening of hearts and a reception of the Holy Spirit that would allow the Spirit to do that work of circumcising the heart, that inner transformation, cutting out the old and bringing in the new. And for those of us, O Lord, who have received that that transformation, received Christ in true faith and received the gift of the Spirit, I pray, O Lord, that you would work within us a renewed commitment, a renewed wonder and praise, a renewed devotion, a renewed and deepened assurance that we are truly the children of God. Lord, hear our silent prayers this morning. Oh, Lord, so many of us have come into your house this morning with a false sense of assurance about our relationship with you based on the knowledge we possess or the rituals we perform. And I pray, oh, Lord, that you would circumcise our hearts, that you would wash us and cleanse us and renew us and work within us, oh, Lord, a a heart devotion and a heart obedience by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And may we then, O Lord, know that we are truly your children and may we live with you as our true vision and ruler of all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.